0: The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Amen. Well, this is the word of the Lord. As we come to it, I'm going to ask for God's help to teach us today. So would you pray with me once again? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word that you have uh, spoken to human authors who have written it down and you've preserved it for generations so that we could hold it here this morning and read your very words, Jesus. As we do, we ask that you would be our teacher today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, during World War II, uh, there was a special uh, Nazi-sponsored operation. that was kind of this secret mission. Maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, uh, but it was called Operation Bernhard. I discovered this recently, and um, it was uh, basically a Nazi codename for this counterfeit operation that they were trying to run. Basically, what they had decided to do is they decided to forge English currency uh, and do it to to the best of their ability and flood uh, their marketplace with fake currency and to overwhelm it with with fake notes so that uh, real notes could no longer be trusted. And and the whole point was to bring a a collapse to their entire uh, economy. And so this was a a pretty elaborate scheme, Uh, but they just wanted to to destabilize it. They wanted to to trigger inflation and trigger a mistrust in in, in everything that they had. And so um, the man that was in charge of it it was a former textile engineer, and he put together a team of about 140 experts. And these were experts that were uh, experts in printing, or they were ink specialists, or they were manufacturers, or they were financial experts. He put together this elite team, and all of them didn't want to do it. But all of them were Jewish prisoners in concentration camps. And so under the threat of death, they forced these people to work hard at creating the best counterfeit currency that they could. And they actually did a really phenomenal job. Just the way that historians write about this, from what they've discovered, it seems to be they, the, these things looked as real as it gets. Now, thankfully, the way the story goes is um, this team of people, they slowed down production enough to by the time that this operation was actually ready uh, to be put in place and and banknotes were were ready to be dropped um, uh, over Great Britain as this was going to happen, like before, uh, excuse me, words, English, before they, before this happened, uh, they slowed it down enough to where uh, the Nazi air forces were depleted by the time it was ready. And so it didn't actually happen. There was a a few notes that made their way in, but not enough to really do any kind of of damage. As I read this story and discovered this, maybe as you're thinking about this, you can picture how like crazy dangerous that could be to an economy, right? To have it just flooded with millions of, of bills that are fake. To where everywhere you go, you start to question, is this real? Is this not? And it could just destabilize everything. This is a really interesting story that I'm really glad did not happen, right? to the sovereignty of God, thank you, Lord, that you stopped this from happening, right? But it, it's a story that highlights for us the danger of something counterfeit, right? And what's the great danger of something being counterfeit? It's not just in the fact that it's fake. The danger is that there are those that will believe it's real all the while it's fake. That's where a counterfeit is dangerous, right? That we would put our hope and belief in something that we Think is real, but the whole time it's actually fake. And the danger becomes all the more magnified when it's something that has far greater con- uh, consequences than just money or an economy, but something that has eternal consequences. It becomes all the more dangerous. As we come to this passage today, we are being confronted with the fact that there are many who think that they are Christians and are in fact not There are many who think that they are saved and follow Jesus and therefore will be saved, but in actuality are not. And so therefore they're they're putting all of their hope in something that they think is real, but while the whole time it's actually not. It's a counterfeit in fact, Jesus himself would say this when he was on earth. He says, on that day, when all of humanity comes to stand before Jesus, he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus himself says that there will be many people that come to stand before him thinking that they're Christians, thinking that they follow Jesus, that they're in, all the while they're not. Now, you could see that has far greater ramifications than just some fake bills. So, the question is, how do we know a genuine follower of Jesus? Jesus. How do we know? Can we know? Is it just, I hope so? Or is there some assurance that we can have? How can we know the difference between a genuine follower of Jesus and a counterfeit, if you will? Is there some kind of assurance that we can have? Spoiler alert, yes, I believe there is. But let's see what Jesus says about it, huh? Starting in verse 31, here's what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember we were in this passage where Jesus is talking about how he's the light of the world. He's come to save. He is the the king, the savior, the Messiah. And at the very end of that section, it tells us that there's people that have been listening to him and some of them believed in him. All right, we've seen this pattern throughout Jesus' life in the book of John where Jesus will, will drop some like truth bomb about who he is and it will blow everyone's minds and it will infuriate some, but then for some, they'll believe in him and they'll trust in him. And so we've just read that there were some that believed in him and now we're being told in the very next verse, Jesus said to those very people that had believed in him something. He says to them, abide in me. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now, the author of this book has already introduced to us to the idea of weak, fickle, and fleeting faith. That there are some who come to believe in Jesus, but very quickly fall away because they never actually believed. John's actually already introduced us to this idea, and he usually ties it to those that's faith is dependent on signs and wonders. Right? If you remember some of this, in John chapter 2, I have have this on the screens for us. In John chapter 2, we were told this. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So what happens here in John chapter 2? Many believed in Jesus because they saw the signs and wonders that he did. But being God, he knows why they're believing in him and what that actually means. They're just looking to him because he does wonderful, miraculous things. They're not actually coming to believe and trust in him as their savior, as their king. It's a, it's a quality of faith that's just not very deep and therefore it won't last because it's not rooted, rooted in anything substantial. Or maybe an even better example in John chapter six, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, what does it tell us, right? Look at this. When many of his disciples heard it, heard Jesus's teaching about how if you want to be my disciples, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? We talked about this. Have you missed it? And I just freaked you out. You can go listen back and go listen to the podcast, uh, But he says this teaching and his disciples say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And out here when it says disciples, it's talking about the larger crowd, not the 12 disciples, but this larger crowd that's been following Jesus. So here we have John talking about people that believe in Jesus, even sometimes calling them disciples who aren't really actually sticking with Jesus and following him. In fact, a couple verses later, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So John has already introduced us to people that are believing in Jesus or disciples of him that aren't genuine. They don't last. They fall away. And it explains for us, it points us to this this truth that we've talked about a lot, that Jesus is never interested in just larger numbers of followers. He's not interested in just larger number of followers that aren't actually believers. He insists on making sure they know what it means to follow him. He wants to be crystal clear. He doesn't want anyone with just like a little bit of the truth coming in and following him, thinking that they're following him when they're really not. He wants to lay it all out so it's crystal clear. He wants people to count the cost of what it takes to follow him, which is quite opposite of how many Christian churches operate to this day. Right? We have probably all been in settings where the environment is essentially this. Lower the bar and give just enough information so someone says yes to Jesus. Right? Like, don't get into like the hard stuff or like the difficult truths to wrestle with. Just give the like bare bones, basic, just get them to say yes to Jesus. Get them to pray that prayer and move on. Deal with that stuff later. That's not the approach Jesus takes. He doesn't take the approach of like, hey guys, so you can go to heaven and it can be great and there can be no pain and suffering or you can burn in hell forever. Which would you like? Oh, heaven? I'm so surprised. Come follow me. And yet that's, 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 that's many gospel presentations today. That's not how Jesus operates. It's not what he's interested in. He's not here to just amass a crowd. He's here to call people to follow him, trust in him and believe in him. And so here, we have people in John chapter 8 that have believed in him, and yet he discerns there's something about their belief that's not deep enough. So he wants to lovingly clarify for them, hey, don't have a false assurance. I want to tell you what it really means to follow me. So he says, here it is, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In short, here's what Jesus is saying. And maybe this is hard for us to hear. Perseverance is the evidence of genuine faith. Perseverance in following and trusting Jesus is the actual evidence of genuine faith. Now, you might hear that and immediately think, whoa, 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 wait. Are you now talking about a works-based salvation? I thought everything we preach and talk about is about grace. We're saved by grace, through faith, not our works. Amen. Jesus is not all of a sudden declaring a works-based salvation of if you can keep up, if you can do enough good things for the rest of your life, then you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you abide, if you persevere in abiding in my word, you're truly my disciples. So what does it mean to abide in his word? Well, the Word is not just the teachings of Christ, but the whole Word, the truth of God. Right? When Jesus is talking, there is actually is no New Testament written yet. So he's, he relies a lot on the Old Testament, the very Word of God. Abide in the whole counsel of God. Abide in the teachings of Jesus. Abide in the person and work of Christ. In essence, what he's saying is, To abide in this word is to abide in the gospel message of Jesus that you can't save yourself, but Jesus came down to earth to save you, to die in your place, and if you repent and believe in him, you'll be saved. Abide in that. And by abide, it's this idea of kind of come under that. Build your home in that structure, live in that place. Find your protection and your comfort and your safety under that roof the roof of the gospel message. Come and live here. Abide in this place. Submit to Jesus' authority. Trust and follow Him. It doesn't mean, hey, all of you who perfectly obey are truly my disciples. I think that's how we tend to hear it. Abide in my word and you're my disciples. Okay, so I got to obey perfectly? That's how I'm your disciple? No, that's not what it means to persevere because no one does that. No, to to abide in, in... in the gospel means to come under it, which means we're always repenting of our sins and believing the good news. That's what it means to abide in the word. And it doesn't mean obey perfectly, but it means every time I'm not obeying, I'm coming back under the house of, of the gospel. I'm coming back under it to find my comfort and my security to say, I'm, turn, I'm not following the Lord. I'm, I'm turning from in my sin and I need to walk away from that and come back to the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. I'm going to abide and live there. And trust and follow him there. I was thinking about this kind of in the sense of when you see a a baby that's just starting to walk. Maybe you've been able to have this experience as a parent. Maybe you've watched it. Um, It's a glorious moment to watch a baby take their steps towards one of their parents for the very first time, right? Now... I've seen a handful of these situations in my with my own kids, with my family members, with friends. I've never once seen the scenario where the baby starts taking their first steps walking toward a parent, and then they fall down after a 3 steps. and the parent says, Unbelievable! Embarrassing that you can only take three steps, and then you fall down. That's pathetic. What kind of, you call that walking? Walking is to walk perfectly towards me without, like, I've never seen that, right? That's absurd because that's not what a parent does. What does a parent do when a child takes three steps and falls flat on their face and busts their lips open? They rejoice. They're like, oh my gosh, you're walking. This is amazing. They post it on social media. They pick them up. They're like, "It's, it's a joyous moment. Why? Because they're celebrating that the baby is walking, right? Even, of course, the baby's gonna fall down. It's learning to walk. Sometimes we have this perspective that God's expectation of us is that we will walk perfectly and every time we stumble and fall, he's like an angry parent that yells at us and says, how embarrassing. But actually, I think the picture is more like what we see with parents here. As we're walking towards him, following him, trusting him, and we fall down and we stumble and we sin Picks us back up. He says, keep going. He's pleased with you because you're in Christ. I think that's more of the picture of what it means to abide in the word, to be following Jesus. Is not, hey, you better walk perfectly or else you're not the real thing. No. It's I walk towards him and I stumble and I fall down. He helps me back up and we keep going. And I stumble again, I fall down, he helps me back up and we keep going. And I have his delight towards me at all times. the picture of not a disciple if we, in that analogy is to say i'm not i'm no longer walking towards this jesus i'm going to walk this way in short abide means believe the gospel and follow jesus believe the truth of who jesus is and what he's done build your home there tuck under that We very intentionally have chosen our mission statement as a church. If you haven't heard it, it's this. It's that as the people of God, we're called to this every day to enjoy, trust, and follow Jesus in all things. I think that that's the essence of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus, to enjoy, trust, and follow Jesus. I think it's kind of what Jesus is talking about right here, right? This idea of enjoying him. Is there a delight that you have in Jesus? Do you have an evident love for him? Not a perfect love for him. Stop translating that. Do you have an evident love for Jesus? Do you have a joy in the person and work of Christ? Do you have any amount of satisfaction in him? A desire to see him exalted. If you do, that's the sense of enjoyment, of delight in Jesus. That is not natural to you. It's evidence that you are abiding in his word or that trust word? Are you resting on Christ for your salvation? Do you submit to his authority? Do you confess the sufficiency of what Jesus did as enough for salvation? Are you giving yourself to him? Are you surrendering to his plans? Again, not perfectly. Stop translating that. Do you trust him? Do you believe that he has what's best in mind? Do you believe that that his plans and his wisdom are better than yours? Or this follow? Do you have a desire to obey him? Is there evidence of, of you walking in obedience? Is there evidence of regular repentance when you're not? When you realize, I'm not, is there evidence of repentance? Are we seeing things that the scriptures point us to, like the fruit of the Spirit being developed in your life? Again, not perfectly, but are we seeing snippets of that as we walk towards Jesus, as we abide in him? Those things are not natural to human human nature. The very evidence of those things is the evidence of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life. The point of Jesus talking about this is not to confuse us He's not interested in making you more unsure about whether you're saved or not. That is not his heart. He wants to make it really clear whether you are or whether you aren't. Okay? This mission statement for us is meant to to, to point us towards here. Here's how we are to be walking and abiding. We're to be enjoying Christ. Trusting him and following him together in everything. So he says... When you abide in my word, you'll realize you are truly my disciples. And when you abide in my word, something will happen. He says, You will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. Right? When you abide in the word of God, it'll show you the truth, and that very truth will set you free. Right? It'll show you the truth that we're sinners that can't save ourselves, and we need a Savior in Jesus. And when we come to believe that truth and confess that truth, it sets us free. That's what Jesus is saying. And wrapped up in what Jesus is saying is something inherently appalling to these Jews that say that they believe in Jesus. Did you catch what it was? Wrapped up in what he's saying to them is, hey, if you need to be set free, it's because you're not free, because you're a slave. And that was offensive to these Jews. So they hear what Jesus is saying about, hey, if you're my disciples, if you're truly my disciples, you'll abide in my word. And when you abide in my word, you'll come to see the truth and that truth will set you free. And their instinct is, what are you saying about us? Are you saying we're slaves? They're very offended. Look at what they say in verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? You see, the Jews, they were of the seed of Abraham. They believed that because they were of the lineage of the people of God, the Jewish, the chosen people of God, starting with Abraham, where God birthed, uh, birthed the people of Israel. He, he created for himself a people. And they believe that to, to this moment, because they are of that seed, they're royalty. They're God's royalty. They are inherently in simply through their birth line. And by this very objection that they give to Jesus, they actually demonstrate they don't abide in the word. Because if they were abiding in Jesus' word, they would realize, oh, actually, we're all sinners, even us as Jewish people, and we all need a Savior in Jesus. And I think Jesus is saying this very intentionally, right? Jesus chooses his words very intentionally because he knows that you have to get lost before you can get found. You have to get lost before you can get found. These Jews thought, we don't need to be set free. We're already free. We're we're Abraham's offspring. We're not slaves. Which is a common thought even to this very day. I've never been lost. How can you say that I'm found or that I need to be found? I'm not a sinner. How can you say I need to be saved? I'm not in danger. How can you say I need to be saved? Saved from what? I'm not dead. How can you say I need to be made alive? But Jesus knows you have to get lost before you can get found. If you think that you're found, if you don't think you're lost, if you're convinced, uh, I'm good, then then someone coming to to share a message with you about how you can be found or you could be saved or you can be brought to life, it's irrelevant. You're like, oh, well, I'm good. Just take that elsewhere. Jesus knows that these people here need to get lost before they can be found. And so he says to them, inherently, you're a slave to sin. And it's offensive to them. But the truth is, no one ever, ever comes to Jesus without first believing you're lost. You're sinful. You're dead. You're in need of something that you can't provide yourself. Jesus knows this. It's one of the purposes of the word is to show us our lostness. And so Jesus is doing this with this crowd. He knows he needs to help them realize they're lost before they can get found. And so Jesus answers them. says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So they say, hey, We're not not slaves. We're sons of Abraham. We're royalty. We're in. We don't don't need to be set free from anything. So take that elsewhere. Don't give that to us. And Jesus says, no, listen. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that is meant to bring everyone on the same playing field. To say, everyone who practices sin, which is everyone. And Jesus is telling us that sin is not only something that we do, but it's something that corrupts us. You see, I think we we have a pretty good concept of like, okay, I can do something wrong and therefore that is sin. So I should maybe just try to not do all the wrong things and then I'll sin less. But sin is not just simply actions we take. Sin is also something that corrupts us as we do it. We'd have a, a, a bigger picture of sin. It, it's far more all-encompassing than we realize. It's not just the choice that you made on Tuesday. It's actually something that infects and corrupts everywhere it goes. Right? We, we sometimes think, well, I wanted to do something bad, but then I didn't do it, and so therefore that reveals like this deep godliness in me. Right? Like I really wanted to sin, but listen, I didn't. Therefore, what that reveals about the depths of my heart is how good I am. That's insane. All that reveals is that you wanted to sin. That's not deep righteousness. That's depravity. That's deep sinfulness that you don't want to follow God. That's what that reveals. The corrupting nature of sin is not just that we do sin. It's that we want to do sin. It's that we don't want to do what's truly good. We don't want to give God glory. We don't. That's the corrupting nature of sin. Not just that we do things that don't give glory to God, but that actually, we don't even want to give Him glory. We want to give ourselves glory. That's what we're about. That's the corrupting, enslaving nature of sin. And the practice of sin proves that you're enslaved to it because by doing it, you prove you can't not do it. It's just in our nature, it's who we are. We cannot go a day without sinning. We can't go an hour without sinning. We probably can't go a minute without sinning. It's just, it's just outside, of, like we can't even help it. It's just part of our corruption from the fall. Right? It's like if I were to say the word elephant to all of you right now. Elephant, 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 elephant. Try as hard as you want. You can't possibly not at least for a moment think of an elephant when I say elephant. You can't help it, right? It's, th- it's like it's thrusted upon you. This is kind of the idea of, of sin. It's not just things we do, but it's, it's become a master over us. We have become enslaved to it to where we cannot not do it on our own strength. And by doing it, we prove that we're slaves. And the very practice of sin further enslaves us. It's the evil of sin. And I think addiction is probably one of the greatest examples for us, very practically. Right? You think about a substance. The more we use a substance, the more our body starts to attach itself to that substance. The more we actually physically start to need that substance and... For some, it's come to the point where they are now addicted to that substance to where not only do they, does their body need it, their mind needs it. Their, it feels spiritually they need it. They, emotionally, they, it just becomes all-encompassing to where I need something. And the more it gets used, the more ingrained those patterns become, the more heavy those chains of slavery become. This is what sin does. It's evil. And so Jesus says... Anyone who practices sin is a slave to it. Not just, hey, anyone who practices sin is like, kind of struggles with it. No, anyone who practices it is enslaved to it, is what he says. And he's telling us in this audience here that, that our sin problem is way worse than we realize. We need someone or something that can set us free from that bondage. And so Jesus presses into the offensive nature of this because these Jews thought they were in. They thought they were royalty, but actually they were slaves the whole time. And he loves them enough to tell them that to tell them that they're wrong. And he uses a quick analogy in verse 35. He says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Now, we might not quite understand this analogy that Jesus is making right here, so let me try to explain it for us really quickly. The slavery that Jesus is talking about here in this passage is so different from the, from the picture that we get the moment we hear slave. Right? The moment we hear slaves in our minds as, as Americans is we immediately think of the, the unjust enslaving of, of black men and women in our country. Right? The kind of slave, slave that Jesus is talking about here is, is very different than that. The kind he's talking about here is the kind of uh, there were some in society that would have debts and a, a better option to living on the streets and not having money to pay your debts was to go enslave yourself in someone's home and work off your debt. So by being in the home, there was actually benefits to being in the home even as a slave than it was to be on the streets and be outside the house. That's what he's saying. He's using this cultural analogy that doesn't quite make sense to our minds, right? Because we, we, we think of a structure and a system that God absolutely condemns and is not consistent with the Scriptures. Jesus is talking about something culturally here that was happening where people would get hired in a home. And he's saying the slave in the home, though he has temporary benefits by being in the home as compared to outside the home, he doesn't stay there forever. Because eventually he works off his debt and he's set free. And he leaves the home. But the son remains in the house forever. So I think what Jesus is saying is he's talking to Jews and saying, you as Jewish people have had a temporary benefit to being in the house. And Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 3. He says, what advantage was there to being a Jew? It's essentially this. You knew the word of God. You had the very word of God given to you, revealed to you. But all that that advantage should have done is show you you are a sinner that needs a Savior in Jesus. That's the advantage. No one is saved just by their privilege or their heritage or by their ethnicity or whatever. But the advantage that came for the Jew was that they got to be essentially in the house for a bit and see the commands of God. See the Word of God that revealed that you're a sinner that needs a Savior in Jesus. But the Son, now I think word is used very intentionally by jesus the son remains in the house forever and then the very next sentence he says if the son sets you free you're free indeed because this is who jesus is and what he what he does jesus as the son turns slaves into sons that get to live in the house forever that get to be a part of the family of god forever and if the son does that it is indeed true Because of the authority he has as the son. So he's saying, you're a slave to sin. But I am the son. And when this son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You'll be in the house with him forever as a son or a daughter. Jesus wants his people to have assurance. He doesn't want you to have confusion. He's trying to give assurance to those that are really coming to follow him and trust in him and abide in his word to say, you were a slave to sin, but if you come and follow me, the son, I will set you free. And everyone that I set free is free indeed. Your identity becomes primarily now a set free son or daughter in the house of God. Regardless of your background, regardless of anything, that is now who you are in Christ because of the authority of Jesus and who he does that for, it's done. Do you hear the language of assurance? He's trying to say, indeed, if you abide in me, you come to me, and I set you free, you are indeed free. You don't need to worry. You have assurance. God's desire for his people is assurance, not insurance. Insurance is what we get in case something goes wrong, right? We're all confronted into that. We we, we get house insurance just in case something goes wrong. We get travel insurance just in case something crops up and has to cancel our plans. We get car insurance just in case something drastic goes wrong, we'll be able to get through it. We get insurance in case something goes wrong. But God wants us to have assurance because nothing will go wrong with what he's given us. He says, if I've set you free, you're free indeed. He wants you to have assurance that nothing will corrupt that. Nothing will go wrong. You don't need to take out an insurance policy against that. You can have assurance that that's not changing. That's what God wants us to have. He wants us to have the certainty of that. Not that we would fret and worry about what might happen in the future, but that we would have the confidence of what will happen, that nothing will separate me from the love of Christ. That's what he wants for us. And like the Jews here, there's all kinds of false insurance policies that we're tempted to take out, to give us confidence that we really are God's, that we really do belong to him, that really when we die, we'll really go to heaven. We take out all of these insurance policies to keep in our back pocket, in our wallet, to pull out when we start to doubt it or times go tough to say, no, 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 no. Uh, the youth camp I went to, I made that decision. I stood up and I made that decision to follow Jesus. I prayed that prayer that 47 times. I, 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 okay, I, I, can, I can be confident. I, I can believe this because I made this decision as if it's some kind of like insurance policy. I think there's many out there that are, that are holding on to, I made a decision, I prayed a prayer. We, we, we've talked about this a little bit over the last couple months, that just simply coming to make a decision to follow Jesus is not necessarily what it means to, to be born again. I could go, we could walk down the 4th Street right now, and I bet you we could get some people to make some decisions to pray a prayer to follow Jesus because they don't want to go to hell. Just because somebody prays a prayer doesn't mean they're necessarily saved. Some people are trusting in their prayer, not trusting in Christ. You See what I'm saying? Right? I'm not saying praying a prayer to trust and follow Jesus is bad. That's beautiful when we're trusting in Christ and not the prayer or the decision. Right? See that difference, I hope? Or there's some walking around thinking, I, I got another insurance policy of like, I'm pr- I'm, my goodness, I'm generally pretty good. I'm a, I'm a good person, a good citizen. I don't do a lot of bad things. So surely when I doubt it, I can be reminded, no, actually, I'm pretty good. I'm probably on God's team. Or bust out the, you know, how I feel or my, my emotional experiences that I had. No, 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 I've had moments where I, where I felt this, where I, where I experienced this, so therefore I must be. Or I I was born into a Christian family. What better insurance policy, right? My parents go to church. I've always gone to church. I went to a Christian school. And none of those are depending on Christ, but only on ourselves. And it's not assurance. It's insurance. And Jesus is coming to us saying, I want you to know. I want you to be confident I want you to have assurance in my finished work that what I did on the cross actually accomplished salvation for those who believe. Do you believe? You trust in me? And you follow me? Yes? Then have assurance. Have assurance that my work of salvation happened. I did it. I accomplished it for you. And have assurance in my hold on you in my ability and my power to hold you not on your ability to hold on to me this is what the scriptures tell us over and over this beautiful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in a few verses we'll just rifle through really quick john chapter 10 i give them eternal life and they will never perish no one will snatch them out of my hand I'm sure of this that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. Keep going. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Right? Those that have trusted in Jesus and actually believed, he's saying, they'll continue. Who by God's power, they're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Over and over and over, the scriptures proclaim to us that the process God starts with saving sinners, he continues, he sees it through. His hold on his people is strong enough when your faith is wandering and you're struggling to bring you back to him. He wants us to have assurance. But if Jesus has set us free from sin, I think I've got to ask this question as we close. How come sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm free from sin? Anybody with me on that? Jesus, you say that those that trust in you and believe in you, you you'll set free and they'll be free indeed. But if I'm honest, sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm free from sin. And the truth is, we are free from sin, but we aren't free from sin. When Jesus sets us free from sin... It happens in a few different ways. Immediately when you trust and follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you come to him and you say, I'm ready to follow this Jesus. I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I see what he's done for me on the cross. I I repent for my sins. I turn and I follow him. I throw everything I need is in Christ. He's my Savior. At that very moment when the Spirit of God brings new spiritual life into someone, the Bible tells us at that very moment we are justified, which means we are declared righteous, Which, to use the language of this passage, in that moment, we are set free from the penalty of sin forever. The penalty of sin is gone for you. For all time, you're set free from the penalty of sin. And from that moment forward, God starts this process in your life where he walks with you day by day. And what he's doing day by day is he's sanctifying you. In other words, he's freeing you from the power of sin in your life every day. So the moment you trust in Jesus, you're freed from the penalty of sin. As you follow him throughout your life, he is freeing you from the power of sin with the promise that one day, when you join Jesus in heaven, you will be freed fully and forever from the presence of sin. Three Ps. You're welcome. Right? Right? We are free from the penalty of sin that's done and forever. As we follow Jesus, He's regularly freeing us from the power of sin in our lives. And we can believe that when we join Him, He'll fully free us from the presence of sin. There is an already and not yet aspect to this that we're called to walk in. You know that feeling of working really hard for something? Maybe it's a race. Maybe it's a test. Maybe it's, I, I don't know, a final something. I remember that feeling as a, as a senior in high school, walking into my last final. Right, maybe you, maybe you remember this, but I, I remember this, I was just like walking into my last final thinking I am almost there. I got this one final ahead of me, this one last obstacle. And at this point, there's nothing else I can do, right? I've done all the studying I can, There's no more cramming I'm going to do in these last few moments that are really, really going to make a difference. As I walk into that last final as a senior, what do I need to do? I need to rest on what's already, I need to rest on what's already done. All the prep, all the studying, I need to just rest in that because I can't do anything about it. I can rest in that. As I take this final, I can labor to do the best I can to to answer the questions. And all the while, while I'm taking it, you know this feeling as a senior, you're, you're eagerly awaiting that last question to turn it in and walk out the doors and you know I'm free, baby. Regardless of if I, if I got an F or if I got it, well, depending on your grades, you might not be free. This is a feeling I had. My grades were decent enough to where I knew like, okay, even if I didn't do great, I know I'm free, right? I might have some consequences to face depending on how well I did. But regardless, I know I'm done with this place. I'm out of here. I'm free. I could rest on what I had already put in. I could labor in the test while hoping for something that was coming. In somewhat of a similar way, we're called to do that as we follow Jesus. To rest that we are justified. The work has been done. We have been freed from from the penalty of sin. We can rest in that with total assurance and confidence. And from that rest, we can labor on and following Jesus and being patient and trusting him and relying on him and believing in him. And as we labor, we can hope with a living hope towards the future that we can be eager for and excited for and bank on that there is a day coming when I will be fully set free from the presence of sin. We can rest, labor, and hope all because of Christ. That's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus wants you this morning to have assurance. Not in your faithfulness, but in the message of the gospel he's presented to you. That if you believe and you trust in me, I set you free. And who I set free is free indeed. Let's pray together. Worship team can come on up. Heavenly Father, I pray that this morning you would give us, those of us that have trusted and follow you right now, you would give us a deep confidence and an assurance in who you say that we are, that we can trust you, we can believe you. Father, for those of us this morning that you have been convicting us of sin as we've been sitting here, maybe we've been finding some kind of false assurances in other places, or maybe we've been realizing there's ways that we're not enjoying you, we're not trusting you, we're not following you. Lord, would you invite us this morning right now to, back, to come back to you, to repent and believe again. But Lord, as we respond to you now, I want to pray against the lies of the enemy, that he would love to to speak into this place and into these people. Accusations of certain sins that can't possibly be covered, of failures that he wants to remind us of, to make us feel like maybe we're not saved, maybe we're not loved by the Lord. God, we want to rebuke that voice and say it has no place among your people. We want to listen to your voice, which tells us that if you've set us free, we are free indeed. Would you help us to walk in that freedom? We need your help. It's not easy. Be near to us. Give us the strength. We thank you for the truth that when you come into our lives and you set us free, you give us the power to obey that we did not have. You give us the desire to want to obey that we didn't have before. And so, Lord, we are grateful. We pray this in your name. Amen.